while, while people are making their way in, let me just let me just do this. Any of you who preach regularly ever done something in the pulpit that you, thinking back on it, are just mortifiedly ashamed that you did? Most of you have probably done that. Um, I, uh, when I was much younger, this was long before I became a pastor at Third Avenue, I was preaching a, a sermon, and it was one of those where, you know, the material was really familiar to me, didn't have any, didn't have any problems with it, and I uh, stepped, stepped out from behind the, the pulpit to do a lot of exhortation and talking and describing all the rest of it, and, and I, uh, was, I was a guest preacher at this church that I had never been, for, been to before, and the pastor was sitting down on the floor down there, and as I kind of went about, you know, talking about Jesus being crucified and all of this, he kept looking up at me going, you know, shaking his head at me, and I kept thinking, I, I literally am just talking about Jesus dying on the cross. Why do you keep telling me no and pointing at me and sort of going like, like this? And, and he would tell me to step back back to the pulpit, and so I would sort of sheepishly go behind the pulpit, and I'm like, what is this fundamentalist church that will not let me get out from behind the pulpit? So anyway, I finally finished the sermon up and went down to the, to the back of the room, and the, the pastor stood, stood next to me, and I said, Why? were you telling me to step back behind the pulpit? And he said, because your fly is down. <laughs> and I just melted. I was just like, I am so, I am mortified that this has just happened. I, I think that's the only time that I have been ashamed in preaching the gospel of Jesus. <laughs> but I had a pretty good excuse for it, I think, that morning. Anyway, now that everybody's back in here, take a Bible and turn over to uh, Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking especially at uh, two verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I told you that what I want to do is engage your mind and heart with the idea of of the mission, what we are about as as churches, as uh, as church leaders, and that we were going to start with leaning toward the mind and then move uh, uh, later in the morning, so right now, toward trying to engage the heart. And that's really what I want to do. I kind of want to take that last little point that I made right at the end, that this is an unstoppable mission, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. I want to go to Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, and basically just meditate on that fact for the time that we've got together this morning. So uh, as you make your way to Romans, let me tell you just a little bit about it. Uh, Romans has always been recognized as one of the most important books, if not the most important book in the Old Testament or New Testament, because it lays out so completely and so clearly the good news of exactly how God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. Uh, It was written by the Apostle Paul as an introduction to himself, to Christians and the church in Rome. He had not planted the church in Rome, and yet he was headed toward Rome from Jerusalem in order, he hoped, to make his way on to Spain, which he would have understood as the uttermost parts of the earth. So even in in that phrase, and that reality, you can see Paul, his understanding of the mission of the church was to do what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You're to be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth, and as far as Paul knew at the time, Spain was it. Let's get to the Iberian Peninsula, and that is as far as as you can go. Ne plus ultra. Beyond this, there is nothing else, right? So that's what Paul was trying to do. And so as he was headed that way to meet these people in Rome and have them send him on his way, he wanted to make sure that they knew that he believed the same gospel that they did. And so he writes this letter to clarify in part, that, you know, you, Romans, and I, Paul, believe the same gospel, and so I'm going to ask you to help send me on my way to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
I mean, you read the book and you can see that there's, there's more going on there as well. It's not, it's not just the kind of bare laying out of the, the facts of the gospel. Paul is an apostle. He's got the authority of an apostle. He's gotten word through various means that there are some problems that have cropped up in the Roman church. And so he wants to address that. And the way that he does it is to bring to bear the truth and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to try to solve those problems, this rift that had begun to be created between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Paul's going to apply the truth of the gospel and try to heal that rift. So that's what he does. And for the first part of the book, really through chapter 8, he's just laying out step by step by step the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I don't want to look at the whole of the the first eight chapters of Romans. I want to look at two verses, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And the reason I want to do that is, is because those two verses, in a peculiar kind of way and in a unique kind of way, form a topic sentence for the whole book. They tell us in a short compass, in a nutshell, where Paul is going to be headed with this thing. They, they, they speak the gospel in a very short sort of compass. And, and then Paul is telling us with that short compass what he's going to be talking about for the whole rest of the letter. So let's look at those two verses. And I want you to know, even before we get there, that Paul is using these two verses as a stated reason for the fact that he wants to come preach the gospel in Rome. So he says, I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. That's verse 15. Because, and now verse 16. I want to preach the gospel because I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Paul says a massive amount of stuff here in the space of about 40 Greek words. You've got a tightly packed little gospel bomb here, and it's essentially explaining why Paul has given his life to preaching the gospel and why particularly he wants to preach the gospel in in Rome. So, okay, why? Well, let's look at it closely just to see clearly exactly what he's saying there. There are three separate thoughts here that all build on one another. So look through verses 16 and 17 and find all the times that the word for, which could also be translated as because, is used. How many times do you see the word for there? Well, it's three. And each time you see the word for or because, each one of those times is starting a new idea that's building on the last one. So so you look at the first one. He says, for, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The next one is right there in the same, same line. I'm not ashamed of the gospel about Jesus because, or for, it is the power of God for salvation. And then the last one there at the beginning of 17. And I say that it is the power of God for salvation because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith unto faith. So, so even just seeing that little structure, four, 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 and each one building on the last one. I'm not ashamed because it is the power of God. And I say it's the power of God because in it the righteousness of God is, is manifested or revealed. You can see that it's a tightly packed little bomb of truth. Every word and phrase has meaning. Every word and phrase is drawing on ideas from the Old Testament. And every word and phrase of it is building on what came before But even though it's tightly packed, I I don't think it takes much to see exactly what he's saying there, to see why he wants to go preach the gospel in Rome. He's basically saying here, 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm ready to preach this thing anywhere, regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what people think about me, regardless of what people do to me. I'm ready to preach this message, including to you at Rome, because I know that the good news of Jesus, the good message about Jesus, has massive, unstoppable power. And so therefore, I preach it. So that's the, that's the main idea. That's the challenge, I think, that Paul would give to us as church leaders. If you're a guy who stands in the pulpit and preaches every week, this is for you. If you're somebody who doesn't stand in the pulpit every week and preach, but you just live your life out there in the world, this is also for you. We, as Christians, can have unshakable confidence in the gospel of Jesus because it's powered by the God of the universe. We can have unshakable confidence in the gospel of Jesus because the gospel of Jesus is powered by the God of the universe. And I want you to know that I mean that from top to bottom. So thinking about it from, from kind of the bottom, I mean that you can have unshakable confidence in the gospel. I mean that as the gospel intersects with your own life. No matter what's going on, no matter what struggles you have, you can rest in the gospel. You can find peace in the gospel. You can cling to and embrace the gospel of Jesus because it will never, no matter what's going on, prove insufficient. And it will not turn out in any way to be untrue or not as good as promised. You can rest in it. You can have unshakable confidence in it because it is powered by the God of the universe. So I mean that all the way down into the nitty-gritty of your life. But I also mean it on a grand scale. I'm also telling you that you can have unshakable confidence in the gospel as you preach it and share it with other people, even in the hardest countries in the entire world. You can have massive freedom, massive joy in knowing that this message of the gospel is different. And this is what I want to try to convince you of today as I talk. This message is different from every other message. Because this is the message that God has determined he is going to use to give people spiritual life. It's imbued with his power. It's imbued with his life-giving authority. And when it's preached and when it lands on fertile soil, it will bring life. It has massive, unstoppable power. Three reasons we can be unashamed of the gospel, unshakably confident in it. I want to just kind of unpack each one of those four statements in Romans 1, 16 to 17. Number one, we can be unshakably confident in the gospel because it has massive power. Number two, we can be unshakably confident in it because it offers an awesome gift. Number three, we can have unshakable confidence in the gospel because its invitation is wide open and universal. Its invitation is wide open and universal. My guess is that no matter what your church is facing, no matter what kind of trials it's facing, no matter you know, how big your church is or how powerful your church may seem to the world, my guess is that you understand maybe even anew after conversations that we've already had this morning, is that our job as churches is to march forward with the gospel. We want to be churches that are not just on defense for the gospel, but that are on offense against Satan's kingdom. We want to go to people who are currently his captives and tell them that there's freedom in Christ and watch the gospel unlock their chains and for them to march into the light. That's what we want. But before we can march on offense against Satan, that requires us to kind of find our own footing first, doesn't it? I mean, you can't, you can't march until you've learned how to walk. 
But for a lot of people, for a lot of Christians, we never get to the offensive stage. We never get to marching because we never figure out how to kind of stand firm ourselves. We never figure out how to have confidence in the gospel in our own lives, much less tell somebody else how to do that. Well, brothers, my guess is that at least at some point in your life, before you began the ministry that you began, you had, you had your footing in the gospel. And the reason, in part, that you agreed to go into that ministry was because you realized, this is something I can stand on. I can go on offense against Satan from this ground. But man, life happens, doesn't it? Life happens and time passes and the years go by and COVID hits and your church gets rocked by some division or whatever it is. And sometimes subtly and sometimes more cataclysmically, you can lose your footing in that confidence. Well, my hope is that today, even by looking at this passage, you'll find a little bit of that footing again. If your foot's been slipping, it will catch. Maybe you'll stumble a little bit when that happens, but you'll find your footing and your confidence again in the gospel. I pray you'll see the incredible confidence of the gospel and learn to have that confidence maybe again as you tell it and preach it to other people. So point number one, looking really at verse 16, the very, very first part of verse 16, have confidence in the gospel because it has massive power in itself. Because it has massive power in itself. That's the very first thing Paul says here in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Okay, now, so far in this book, from Romans chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down through verse 16, Paul hasn't really yet explained what this gospel or this good news is. It just, it, it, he's, he sketched it out a little bit in the intro. He's given us a few facts about the gospel in the introduction to the book. But I, I think what's going on at this point in chapter 1 is that he knows that he can just reference the word gospel, and basically all his listeners are going to know exactly what he's talking about. And besides that, he's going to spend the whole next 15 chapters of the book laying out exactly what he means. So here at the beginning, he just you know, looks into the eyes of these Roman Christians and tells them straight up, you guys know what the gospel is, and I want you to know that I'm not ashamed of that because it is the power of God for salvation. It's an amazing thing for him to say that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And notice, notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is an incredibly powerful message. He doesn't say that. He says it is the power of God for salvation. Now, that's a phrase that is packed full of Old Testament imagery and Old Testament allusions. And if you're going to understand what Paul means by saying the gospel is the power of God for salvation, you've got to think a little bit like a first century Jew. So, so think about the situation that first century Jews were under. They were under oppression. They were aware of their sin. They were desperately in need of rescue and salvation, both from their sin and from the Romans. They came from a long line of ancestors who themselves were under oppression by the Assyrians and the Egyptians and then finally the Babylonians. And as soon as they made it back into their land, they were conquered by the Greeks and then the Romans. It's just been one oppressive thing after another. And in the Old Testament, the great hope for the Jews coming out from under that oppression was for God to come back and rescue them. That, that's what they mean by salvation in the Old Testament. The day when God will split the skies and come back and, and he will make his righteousness and his justice known in the world. He'll set everything right, and he'll gather all of his people back to Jerusalem. That's what they meant when they talked about the salvation of God. And one of the ways that they would talk about that was that the day of salvation was also the day of the revealing of God's power. 
So you remember in some of the prophets or the Psalms when, you know, the David or Isaiah, the prophet, will cry out to God, Lord, bear your right arm, right? In other words, roll up your sleeve and show us what you've got. You know, like, like dr- drop the hammer on, on the world in all of its oppression and injustice. Reveal your power to the world and therefore bring salvation. Well, if you look at that phrase with all of that background to it, it it's, it's just astonishing what Paul is saying here. I'm not ashamed of this gospel, this message of Jesus Christ, because all that stuff you've been waiting for, the bearing of the Lord's right arm, the coming of judgment, the coming of justice, the saving of God's people, the power of God in salvation, this is it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because this message is what the Old Testament has been talking about from the very beginning. It's incredible, isn't it? That Paul is pulling the day of the Lord forward and saying, in this message, you see everything the Old Testament promised or the beginning of it at any rate. See, it's, it's not just a powerful message. There are lots of powerful messages out there, right? I mean, advertising agencies make a living by trying to come up with powerful messages. You know, we had just a few, a few weeks ago, we had the Super Bowl in America, and one of the great spectator sports of the Super Bowl is not the game itself, but the commercials that are going to be played during the game. And companies spend millions of dollars trying to catch attention from people watching the game, and every once in a while, they'll come up with something that Twitter will set on fire about with, wow, that was such a powerful message that was communicated in that commercial. That is not what Paul is saying about the gospel. He's not saying that it's a powerful message in the same way that Coca-Cola managed to pull off a powerful message in the Super Bowl. One that inspires and one that causes you to reflect and think and maybe even puts a tear in your eye. That's not what he's saying. It's not just a powerful message. What he's saying is that the message of the gospel is backed, it's powered, it's electrified by God himself. And there's no other message in the universe like that. Now, if that's true, then what that means is that if this message is powered by God himself, if God is determined in his sovereignty, this is how I'm going to save people, well, that means that when it goes out, it goes out with a power that's unique from any other message that's ever preached. It goes out with power by its very proclamation to raise the dead, with power to change the heart. It's that message and that message alone that the Holy Spirit has determined that he's going to use to bring people to spiritual life. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians, you can see that this is how Paul talks about the message of the gospel. You can flip over, but I'm, I'm going to read it to you. Verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, The word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or look at 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the pow- this message of ours is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You, he said, as Corinthians were changed when the gospel was preached to you. You were brought from death to life. So here's here's what I want you to see from this. When you stand in the pulpit and preach the gospel to people who have never heard it, 
When you stand in the pulpit and preach the gospel, even to people who have heard it a thousand times, you never know but that this might be the moment when that seed hits some fertile soil and the Holy Spirit electrifies it and brings that person to life. The message of the gospel causes that to happen. And Jesus taught about this too, right? When he said, my sheep know my voice. The message has power to draw the sheep in. At the, at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus' word had power. And he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? The, the dead man comes out of the tomb. The preachers have always noted that it's a good thing Jesus specified Lazarus come forth or else everybody in the tombs would have come out. They had a real spectacle at that point. John chapter 5, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's what Paul's saying here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. When the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit uses it to bring life where there was only death. Look, first thing I want you to do in just thinking about this mission of ours to proclaim the gospel and make disciples is just step back for a second and be astonished at this fact. There are a lot of messages that you could preach. There are a lot of good things that you could say from the pulpit in your church, but there is only one that God has determined to use to bring people to life. I mean, do you know, do you know what an incredible thing it was for you to become a Christian? I mean, you realize that that was a miracle, right? When you became a Christian or when anybody becomes a Christian in your church, it's not just that they heard a powerful message and were moved by that powerful message to make a decision about their life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop doing this and begin doing these things. I'm going to turn over a new ethical leaf. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace a new ethical system and start making different decisions. That is not what happened. It's not what happened when those people become Christians. It's not what happened when you became a Christian. Now, when you became a Christian, when you heard the gospel, brother, sister, the, the same power that created the universe brought life to your dead soul. You realize that? I mean, when, when, when the voice of the Son of God called out to you in your spiritual deadness and said, Josh, wake up, and the Holy Spirit woke you up, you realize that those words could have created an entire universe. There was that much power in them. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He talks about it in Romans uh, 4 also when he, says, when he says that God who saves has the power to bring something out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo. He's, he's, he's harnessing the power that created the universe to bring life to your dead soul and to the dead souls of the people you preach to. Which means that whether you're a preacher or not, you don't have to be tied up in knots with nervousness about telling people about Jesus. No matter where you are, underground, overground, Sharjah, Abu Dhabi, wherever you are, this gospel that you're telling them, this gospel that you're preaching, is backed and empowered by God. That's what Paul meant. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed to stand up in the most dangerous, hardest places in the world and proclaim this gospel because it's not my job, he meant, to make them believe it. There are a lot of things in this life that it is, in fact, your job to make people believe, right? And if you're a pastor, you know that. There are certain things that it's your job to make people believe, and if they don't believe it, it's your fault. Those commercials in the Super Bowl, the job of the ad agency is to make me buy Coca-Cola because those messages are just sock puppets, right? 
Those messages, as powerful as they are, you still have to put it on your hand, and you still have to make that message talk. Not the gospel. The gospel is no sock puppet. The gospel has its own power. There was one, one missionary that said the gospel is like a lion. His job was just to open the cage and watch it do its work. Look, I know telling people, especially, I, I mean, you know, I know a lot of you are pastors. Not all of you are. If you're a pastor, maybe this doesn't sound right to you. Maybe you've kind of gotten past it because you do this every week. But telling people about Jesus can be scary. I mean, I've been a pastor now for almost 13 years, and I can tell you that unless I'm in my element right behind this wooden desk, telling people about Jesus is still scary. You know, you sit down next to somebody on a plane, and there's a whole different dynamic going on than when you mount a pulpit to talk to, you know, dozens and dozens of people about Jesus. It's scary to tell people about Christ. But it's also amazing and awesome because you get to see things happen that just just leave you kind of going, oh my gosh, that was completely unexpected. I did not expect that person sitting next to me on the plane to be that receptive to Jesus. Just wasn't expecting it at all. Or you get into a conversation and you don't know where it's going, but you can just kind of feel over time the Spirit turning it to things that really matter. And it just kind of leaves you going, wow, I, I, just, I, I just watched the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit do something right there. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Get into conversations with people about Jesus that you don't know where they're going to go. Do that a lot. Get into conversations that you don't have planned out. Have confidence in the gospel because it has massive, massive power. Here's point number two. Have confidence in the gospel, not just because it has massive power, but because it offers an awesome gift. Because it offers an awesome gift. That's the next thing Paul says there. It's the power of God for salvation because, and that, now he's going to say what it is about the gospel that makes it so powerful. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, that's another, like if you're a first century Jew and you're reading this, you would have had the day of the Lord invoked by Paul talking about the power of the salvation of God. You would have thought, oh, that's the day of the Lord and Paul's bringing it forward. Well, this one too. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is, is revealed. If you're reading that as a first century Jew, that also is evoking the day of salvation that we talked about a few minutes earlier. That word revealed there, for in it, 17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for, for faith. That, that word is actually the word apocalypse. That's what the word is. It's, it's revealed. We've come to the moment of the revelation. So if you're reading it for the first time, that's what you're thinking. The great day when the power and salvation and righteousness of God would be revealed is here. Now, if you just sort of stopped right there, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed upon the world. That would be a terrifying place to stop. You ever think about that? In the gospel, in the message about Jesus, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed, revealed upon the world. It's, it's terrifying. And that just seems to get reinforced, uh, rein, uh, reinforced, in fact, in verse 18. Because what's revealed is the wrath of God. It's terrifying because if, if the gospel, if the good news of Jesus Christ, if the news of Jesus Christ is just the wrath and righteousness of God being revealed on the world, then, then we're all done. 
Because we're sinners, we're rebels against God, and the righteousness and wrath of God being revealed against the world would be in our destruction as rebels. It's terrifying. But thankfully, it doesn't stop there. Paul goes on. There's a clue that something else is happening here, and it's in that phrase, from faith to faith, or from faith for faith. Your, your, your Bibles are going to translate that in all kinds of different ways. What, what does that mean exactly? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or from faith to faith, or you know, by faith, by faith, however you translate it. What does it mean? Lots of ideas here. Some people have said, well, it means from one kind of faith to another. You know, maybe it's an Old Testament faith giving way to a New Testament faith. Or maybe it means from no faith to faith. But I, I think if you look at it, it all of that is just, is just way too complicated. It's just saying that the righteousness of God is revealed entirely by faith. From faith to faith, by faith, by faith. However it's translated, it just means entirely of faith. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 that to those who are perishing, we Christians have the savor of death unto death. Which means we, to, to those who are perishing, we as Christians who are constantly talking about Jesus just smell like nothing but death to them. It's why so many people reject the gospel so hard. It's why you get shut down in those conversations so often. It's because the message that you're preaching and therefore you smell like death to death to them. Entirely like death. But to those who are being saved, he says, we have the savor of life unto life. We smell entirely like life. So, so here's what he means. He means the righteousness of God is, is being revealed on the earth and it is entirely of faith. It is from faith unto faith. It is about faith from start to finish, from beginning to end, and it's faith all the way down. But that's weird, isn't it? Because God doesn't have faith. We do. So how is the righteousness of God being revealed by our faith? Strange thing to say. So, so obviously, I mean, you think about it there. Paul is obviously talking about something different than God just revealing his own righteous character. He's talking about God doing something different than just acting righteously or revealing his wrath. I mean, he can do those things whether we have faith or not. You realize that, right? I mean, for God to reveal his righteousness on the world, to apocalypse his wrath on the world does not require you to have faith. And yet Paul says here in 17, that this righteousness of God that is being revealed happens through human faith. So what's he talking about there? What is this righteousness of God that is revealed by faith? Well, he's going to unfold it through the whole book, but I'll just take you to the end of the story now. He's talking about a righteousness that is given to believers from God. He's saying that the righteousness of God that's being revealed is not just his character that he's showing to the world. It's a righteousness that belongs to him that he is giving to believers as a gift. Romans 5.17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of the message that we preach right there. That God gives to his people the righteousness of Jesus and then treats them as if they have his righteousness. 
The heart of the gospel is that you and I, as rebels before God, need to be declared righteous before the king. We need the king to look at us and not say, you are guilty as charged, be gone from my presence, but rather to say, you are righteous. So welcome to your inheritance. Now, how does that happen? I mean, does that, does that happen through God just looking at the, the record of your life and seeing all the good things that you've done, seeing your sacrifice and moving to a new place, a new country, a new city, and saying, wow, that's righteous stuff. Welcome to your inheritance. You've done well. No, that's not how it happens. Because the Bible says that even the most righteous thing you've ever done is shot through with bad motives and with sin. And what, what Paul is alluding to here, and he's going to unfold it more clearly later, is that through Jesus, and what Jesus did for us in living the life we ought to have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die, is that God gives us that righteousness. You all know the word. It's imputed. God imputes or credits to us the righteousness of Jesus, and then he treats us accordingly. And this is what the Bible means when it talks about being united to Christ. Our sin is given to Christ, and he dies because of it, and Christ's righteousness and death in our place is given to us, and we live because of that. When you're united to Jesus, all of a sudden, God doesn't pass judgment on you. He doesn't render a verdict on you according to your own record. He passes judgment on you according to Jesus' record. And friends, that's a life-changing truth. It's an eternity-changing truth, to be sure, but it is also a life-changing truth. Because when you realize that when the God of the universe looks at you, he's going to judge you according to Jesus' record, that will cut the root of nagging guilt because of your sin. Because you'll realize that when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. And what about all my junk? My junk died on the cross with Christ. And then when it was expired, he threw it as far as the east is from the west and into an ocean that has no end of depth. It's out of his memory. And all he sees when he looks at me is Jesus. I mean, there are Christians out there, there may be some Christians in here that have struggled with guilt over their sin for years, and Satan just hammers you with accusation and with guilt and the thought that God will not forgive. Maybe he's a forgiving God for everybody else, but not for this. Well, friends, you, use, use this. Use this as a weapon. That the righteousness of God, the gift of righteousness that God gives to human beings comes through faith. You come to the king and you say, you say, oh, king, I can't, I, can't, I can't save myself. I've rebelled against you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a goner. There's nothing I can do. But you've said that you can save me. You've said that through your life and your death and your resurrection, you can save me. So I'm putting my faith and my trust in you to do that. That's what faith is, right? It's, it's trust. Faith is trust. It's, it's, it's not just believing in something ridiculous without any evidence. The world thinks that's what faith is. It's not. Faith is a rock-solid biblical word that means to size something up and determine if you think it's worthy of trust, and then to trust it. To size it up, determine if you think it's reliable, and then rely on it. Right? I mean, you could, you could look at this pulpit and say, okay, you know, this thing looks pretty solid. It's not going anywhere. So it seems pretty reliable, right? So, so I, can, I can rely on it. I can lean on it, right? Whereas that camera stand, I would never try to lean on that because it doesn't look reliable. Like if I tried to lean on that, it would just collapse and it would be embarrassing for everybody, right? It would also break the camera. When you have faith in Jesus or when you call people to have faith in Jesus, 
You're not calling them to believe in him without any evidence. You're calling them to size Jesus up, to make a determination about whether they think he really is who he says he is and whether he can really do what he says he can do. And when they've come to the conclusion that, yes, I do believe that, to say, Jesus, I'm relying on you to save me because I've got no other shot apart from you. Friend, when guilt attacks and Satan makes accusations, use this as a weapon. Don't try to argue with him. Don't try to tell him that you're not really as guilty as he's saying that you are. Don't try to tell your conscience that you're not as guilty as it's saying that you are. Don't try to explain to your conscience all the mitigating circumstances. Don't try to weigh up the scales with enough good things to outweigh the bad. Just say to Satan or your conscience or whoever else, you're right. Everything you're saying is right. And yet Jesus has died for me already. And your access to God is cemented open. It's cemented open if your faith is in Jesus because Jesus will never be any less righteous than he is now. It's the power of God for salvation. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Here's number three. Have confidence in the gospel because its invitation is wide open. Twice in these verses here, Paul talks about how a person gets all of these great gifts. This is, this is how you get forgiveness. This is, how you, this is how you come to salvation. This is how you get it. It is through faith. He says that two times. Do you see it? One of those times we've just talked about in 17, this righteousness of God is apocalypsed. It's revealed. It's given from faith to faith. That's how it happens. It's, it's belief, trust, all the rest. In 16, he says, it's for everyone who believes. So two times, he says, this is how you get it. It's through faith or belief or reliance or trust. It's the same word in both 16 and 17. At the end of this, he, there in 17, he quotes the prophet Habakkuk there. It causes confusion sometimes because we read that and we think he's talking about the Christian life, right? As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall walk by faith. In other words, if you're righteous, you're going to live by faith, right? That's the Christian life, and that's how we think he's saying that. But he's not, he's not saying, it, Habakkuk isn't saying, and Paul isn't saying, the righteous will walk faithfully day by day. That's not what he means. What he means is, is something more like this. Those who are ultimately to be the righteous, those who are in the camp of those who have been declared righteous, will live, they will have that life, they will find that salvation through faith. That's what he means. Does that make sense? It's not if you're already righteous, you will now live by faith. That's not what it means. It means the great category of those who will be the righteous will find that life through faith. What Paul means is what Habakkuk means. It's the third time he says it. You will find this life through faith. Look at that phrase there too in 16. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, there it is, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, Paul just, Paul just packs this thing full of words that say this is a wide-open invitation. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and then to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In other words, it starts here among the Jewish nation, because you know, that's, that's where God sort of embedded his promises, but it's going to universalize and explode out to all the nations of the world, to the, to the Greek, to the Gentile, to the ethnic. 
You see what he's saying there? It's wide open for everybody. Jew and Greek, that's, that covers it. That's the whole waterfront. That's, that's the entire world, and this gospel is available. Listen, this gospel of Jesus Christ is the most universal and wonderful invitation in the history of the world. It's the most universal invitation in the history of the world because it invites everyone to believe and find salvation. When you preach, you're not just preaching to a subset of humanity. You're offering an invitation to everyone in the world. But it is an invitation. And an invitation requires acceptance. I mean, sometimes, you know, especially if you work with, say, university students, freshman and sophomore philosophy students in particular, Christianity gets nailed for saying that you have to accept the invitation. They'll say that's an exclusive invitation. If God was really loving, he wouldn't make you believe in Jesus. He wouldn't make you be a Christian. You could just believe in whatever you want to, and that would be okay. God would still save you. You could be a Muslim. You could be a Buddhist. You could be, you know, some syncretism of, of Hinduism and Buddhism. You could be whatever. You, you could be an atheist. It doesn't matter. If God was really non-exclusive, you could believe everything you want to, and that would be fine. You would still be saved. There's a particular day, I don't know if it happens in other parts of the world, but there's a particular day in, in Louisville anyway, where all the Starbuckses in town give an open invitation to everyone in the city to come get a free 12-ounce cup of coffee. It goes out to the whole city, 1.2 million of us, and the invitation goes out. You come to a Starbucks location, we will give you a free 12-ounce cup of coffee. And lines are like around the building as everybody for some unknown reason, decides to spend an hour and a half waiting on something that would cost you $1.50. But they do it all over the city. I love that day because I get to make fun of those people. <laughs> but notice that that invitation to get coffee is a universal invitation to the whole city. Even though Starbucks does not send a whole bunch of delivery guys out to bring coffee to everyone's house. It's a universal invitation, even though you can't just show up at a pizza hut and say, hey, I'd like my free 12-ounce cup of coffee. The invitation is given, but you have to accept it. You have to come to the right place to get the benefit of it. Same thing that happens with the invitation of the gospel. God says, you're all, you're, you're all a bunch of rebels. You, you've all rebelled against me. You've all thrown off my authority as creator and as king, and because of that, you deserve to die. You deserve to be in hell. You deserve to be cast out of my presence forever and to undergo the torment of my wrath forever. That's what you deserve. But in my mercy and in the mercy of my son, I offer salvation. It's right here in my hand. Come get it. It's in his nail-scarred hand. Come take that mercy. That, that's the message that you're preaching every single Sunday when you stand up in the pulpit. You're offering mercy to a rebellious world, and you're telling them where to come to get it. They can't go over there. They can't go over there. It's not just going to come to them. You're calling them to come to Jesus. It's a beautiful, powerful message that we proclaim. The mission is unstoppable. As I said in the first talk, because... The message that we proclaim in the carrying out of that mission is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes. Praise God.